0: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
1: My Metro stop when I was living in Cairo was the Akaba stop, but it wasn't only my Metro stop. It wasn't only part of my routine. It was a place of symbolic importance to me. Above the metro stop was this epic book market where, when I was tired of working in archives and libraries, I would stop by to look for material for my dissertation. Magazines, old newspapers, books. I even once grabbed an old food magazine for the sake of it. And as important as the material I was actually looking at was in terms of the idea they articulated, ideas they articulated, I was curious how the material got there and where it would end up. What lives these ideas would continue to have? That's the theme of today's interview. My name is Enne Mansour, or Nadira, and welcome to New Books Middle East Studies, part of the New Books Network. Alexander Bevilacqua is an assistant professor professor of history at Williams College. He specializes in the cultural and intellectual history of early modern Europe, uh, 1450 to 1800. He has a bachelor's from Harvard College a master's from the University of Cambridge, and a doctorate from Princeton University. From 2014 until 2017, he was a junior fellow in the Harvard Society of Fellows. His work has appeared in History of European Ideas and Past and Present. He has edited, along with F. Clark, Thinking in the Past Sense, forthcoming in January 2019 with University of Chicago Press, and he's the author of a book, The Republic of Arabic Letters, Islam and the European Enlightenment, out 2018 from Harvard University Press, and winner of the Thomas J. Wilson Memorial Prize of Harvard University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Alex.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
1: No, thank you. So we always sort of start off with a bit of a biographical question. What's your own intellectual history? I know we're talking about intellectual history today, but sort of how did you come to what you studied? What is the story of this book and how did it come about?
2: Well, something that has always interested me is um, the way people make sense of each other um, across boundaries of of religion, of language, of culture, of nation, and um, how they've made sense both of uh, humankind's uh, similarities as well as as differences. And of course, there are many ways of treating this problem. And when I was younger, I was interested in, in the history of political thought and so in, in particular in cosmopolitan uh, political theory. And at some point I realized though that um, these political thinkers I was reading, and, and these were Western, were Western thinkers, didn't have a very rich sense of um, these peoples of the world that they were writing about. And I thought it would be much more interesting to look at the people who had actually dedicated their lives uh, to being involved uh, with somebody else's cultural, intellectual, religious traditions. And um, and I had been studying Arabic um, sort of on the side um, to my own main preoccupations with European history. And eventually um, I realized that, that I should be working on um, the, the early history of Arabic scholarship in the West in order to understand, first of all, why Um, people had been interested in the the early modern period in the 17th uh, century and onwards in uh, Arabic language culture and uh, what concepts had organized and mediated that set of intellectual encounters.
1: What specifically actually brought you to Arabic? I'm really curious because it's such it's such a bizarre language in many ways. It's a classical language. It's a living language. What attracted you to it?
2: Well, it's not a very fancy answer. Um, It was, um, I think learning a language is such a huge investment that in the end, uh, personal um, reasons and and effective reasons as well are really important. And in my case, um, I thought it was a beautiful language. I was very in awe of the the enormous uh, literary tradition that it represented. And as a person who grew up uh, in the, on the northern shore of the Mediterranean in Italy, um, it seemed um, it seemed an important language to learn. So in a way, I just felt I, I need to start learning more about uh, a culture that is is sort of so proximate to Southern Europe, and yet in a way so um, so so comparatively little cultivated by um by by Europeans, or at least speaking for myself, uh, I was in a place of ignorance and I thought I should learn more.
1: And it's such a deep well to dive into, so bravo there, because Arabic is not an easy task. Um, so this book starts off with a history of books. And I do want to say one of the things I loved about this book is its organization. It just reads so easily. You set it up so easily for the reader to sort of follow along. And that's why I think that you start off with the history of books is that the history of books is is very fundamental to intellectual history. And I was wondering if you could articulate a bit more what the relationship of the history of the book is to intellectual history.
2: Absolutely. Well, I think that intellectual history has been enormously enriched by the development uh, of the history of the book as a discipline in the last several decades. And I think um, if we're interested in the history of ideas, we would be really remiss uh, if if we weren't also to ask how those I- ideas were expressed and divulged and transmitted and, and taken up. And all of these uh, questions can be, I think, fruitfully answered by looking at, uh, at the material aspects of, of, um, of intellectual production. So in the case of, of, of the Republic of Arabic letters, in the case of this, uh, interest and engagement with um, Islamic culture in 17th and 18th century Europe, um, it was really important to me to show that it was grounded in the circulation of objects. Um, these translations that I studied wouldn't uh, have been possible without the acquisition of uh, primarily Arabic, but also Persian and Turkish manuscripts in, in, in various places in North Africa and the Levant and even further um, a field. And so I thought the story really has to start with this because otherwise it just seems like a disembodied um, history of, of people changing their minds, you know, sort of, it's much more abstract. It comes to seem more abstract than it really was. And in particular, um, the circulation of books is just one part of an intensification of, um, of, of all kinds of mobility of people uh, in particular, but also uh, of things uh, in the early modern period, something we might describe as early globalization. and I, and I think it's really important um, to to consider uh, this intellectual history uh, as a response uh, to this early globalization.
1: So since we're talking about the material aspect, and I do feel like we're in the midst of a material turn in intellectual history, I have talked to you over the course of the last couple of months specialists in um, the development of Arabic script, in the development of the Arabic book, and it just, it seems like we're really living in sort of a renaissance of sorts of Arabic book history, and I'm glad that this is a part of it, so congratulations on that. Um, But I was wondering if you could describe for us what a manuscript physically looks like and how it also compares to printed books. Because what's interesting about this is that there are two different currents running through this book, which is the Arabic tradition, um, which these European scholars are pulling on. But there's also this is the age of print in Europe. So manuscripts on one side and printed books on the other side.
2: Absolutely. uh, That's a fabulous uh, way of thinking about things because our current usage, I think, misleads us a little bit. We tend to distinguish manuscripts from books as if book were synonymous with printed book. But of course, that's that's not the case. And uh, manuscripts are books too. And um, what's interesting about Arabic manuscripts uh, for a European reader in this period, sort of from between, let's say, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, is that it is a very familiar object uh, in a way. So I, I wouldn't overemphasize. I don't think the fact that, the, that it's not printed, that it's written by hand, is in any way an obstacle to comprehension uh, for Europeans because, um, first of all, they are familiar with uh, manuscripts of, for instance, works in classical Greek that have been collected and edited and published um, in, in recent memory. Um, and second of all, Arabic is an is an alphabetic language. It's even some aspects of page design are not are not dissimilar from things um, in 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 the Western tradition of book production. So um, although um, the, 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 the 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 kinds of, of of paper materials used may be slightly different, ultimately this was a deeply familiar object, and this convergence is what made I think. Um, the Islamic intellectual tradition, not only legible to European readers, um, and I mean that metaphorically, that is not not only comprehensible, but also um, it seemed like a kindred one. So it seemed like a, a very familiar tradition. So uh, it seemed that there was an analogy between the people who were producing these books, say in Istanbul, and uh, the kinds of people who were working with books Including manuscript books in Western Europe.
1: So, as I mentioned, the, first, the book starts off with this history of books to some extent, but it's actually the history of how books, how Arabic language books, and, and as you mentioned, other languages, um, and as the book, this book emphasizes these. Arabic, Turkish, Persian are not widely studied in Europe during this period. So, how did they get to European libraries or to European owners, more specifically, and then then to the scholars?
2: So, so Arabic books are prestigious objects. Um, so, we should consider their collection something that certainly is done for for scholarly reasons, but that that, that may also have less noble or less abstract motivations. That is, it's. It's um, exciting to show off in your elegant library, if you're a wealthy patron of learning, that you have books in foreign scripts, including ones in, in this famous uh, language, which is at this time considered to be um, extremely ancient, you know almost as ancient as Hebrew. So, so there's an enormous cachet that attaches. Arabic books. So, if we're looking at motivations, it's not just scholars, but also collectors who will never read Arabic who are interested in having these books. Um, In terms of practical nuts and bolts, um, these books are acquired uh, mostly in book markets um, in different cities. Um, So, for instance, in Aleppo and in Istanbul, in Cairo, um, in various North African cities uh, as well. And if you look at Persian books, the geography, takes you all the way to South Asia, of course. So um, what is happening is that there are merchant networks at this time, networks of European merchants operating in different um, Asian uh, cities. And uh, scholars sometimes accompany these people or visit them and use, uh, use, them, uh, use these networks as uh, an opportunity for book collecting
1: so one thing that i also that runs through the book i don't think they're the principal players or the actors or even the principal settings but there is heavy reference to modern research libraries such as those at uh, for example the oxford Oxford University's library and the manuscripts and books that end up there. Um, so how do these books and manuscripts tie into the rise of the modern research library? Because today, a lot of these libraries are where scholars like yourself and myself go to to access these materials.
2: Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked that because um, we have a, a sort of a common uh, conception that the the sort of so-called oriental collections of these great European libraries, like say the Bodleian in Oxford or the Leiden University Library in the Netherlands, that those collections were were begun in the 19th century in the the period uh, of of European colonialism. Um, And certainly they were enriched uh, in that period. But what's interesting is that the nucleus uh, of the um, oriental manuscripts in Oxford or in Leiden or in other places like the Vatican Library in Rome and the the, the, the the formerly Royal now National Library in Paris um, these collections were built in the early modern period um, and um, they are still and, the, and the, some of the manuscripts that were acquired at this time uh, by by the gentleman whom, whom I whom I've discussed in my book um, are still uh, important uh r- references for researchers today they're still um, we're still learning from from these collections and it does tie in uh, as you suggested with the rise of uh, the modern research library um, that is um, these collections are put together to expand knowledge and underlying uh, many of them is a dynamic idea of what a library is so, There there are multiple ideals of the library at at this time in in Europe. And one is a a static notion that you can have, you can sort of encompass all knowledge if you you are wealthy enough and organized enough. But there is also an idea that knowledge can ever be increased and that especially once you get interested in non-European traditions, that you can always be acquiring more books. And people's travels... Uh, seem to confirm this. Um, they go, uh, people go to the New World and report about the, the different kinds of, uh, of books that, that are produced there um, or, or in South Asia as well. And, and what's interesting is Europeans are able to see, um, to identify as books, even things that are much more foreign to them than than an Arabic manuscript book. For instance, um Collections of palm leaves, you know, with, with with script on them from 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 South India, uh, or even they even describe uh, the the system of quipus of, of 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 tying knots uh, used uh, by the Inca as as a form of writing. So th- they take a really broad expansion, uh, excuse me, a, a really broad um, c- concept uh, of their remit, and um, and so we can we can really describe. Uh, these library collections as as research collections.
1: So the people that use these research collections, the first to use these research collections, the people who studied these books, you refer to them as the Arabic Republic of Letters. And I was wondering if you could give us a quick rundown of who they were, but also what motivated them to study Islam? In what sense, what is their intellectual biography?
2: Uh, Absolutely. So by a Republic of Arabic letters, I mean uh, a community strewn across Europe of Christian scholars who were studying Arabic. And these people did not necessarily know each other personally, and they were of different confessions. So some were Catholic, some were Protestant. And yet they uh, were engaged in largely the same project, which was... um, the study, the cultivation uh, of the Arabic literary and intellectual tradition. Um, So we can think of it as a sort of a network of people who are certainly competing as well as collaborating, um, but nevertheless who have fundamentally a shared understanding of the task at hand. And the task at hand is understanding uh, this vast tradition to which Europeans feel that they have come so late. And what's interesting about um, this um, fixation, I would say, uh, on Arabic in the seventeenth uh, century and 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 after into the eighteenth, is that there are so many different motivations, and we can't we can't really reduce them to a single one. As I mentioned earlier, people recognize that Arabic is connected to Hebrew, so it's sort of basks in the reflected glory of Hebrew, um, and and people indeed study Arabic, perhaps to improve their knowledge of biblical Hebrew in hopes that they will be able to understand some obscure passages in the Hebrew Bible. Um, But there are many other motivations as well. Some are polemical. Uh, They're ones that we wouldn't expect to help improve knowledge of Islam. People want to uh, disprove um, the claims of the Quran, but they realize that in order to do that, they need really good Arabic, and they need to not only read the the Quran well, but also to understand the Tafsir tradition, the, the the tradition of Muslim interpretation of the Quran. So there's really a variety um, uh, uh, of motivations. Uh, the one that that seems um, it perhaps most unexpected to us today is that is the the notion that the tradition of Renaissance humanism, the rediscovery of um, the classics of of Greece and of Rome and their re-edition and translation, that this movement needs to sort of go global, that it needs to be uh, um, expanded to encompass all kinds of other written traditions. And um, this is something that people explicitly articulate by the end of the 17th century. Um, And that is one of the, one of the several reasons that people uh, have for caring about Arabic in Western Christian Europe at this time.
1: So as, as we mentioned in, in this term is present throughout the book, it's present in the title the, Re- the Republic of Letters, the Arabic Republic of Letters. Um, what motivated you to use a specific term, which is quite common and it's commonly accepted aspect of how we study the enlightenment. Um, what, motivated you to apply this to a specific to this specific set of scholars because it does sort of fit that bill it is this community of, of, of individuals who aren't directly they don't directly know each other but it's a long distance intellectual conversation that's happening over the course of many of generations um, so is this part of the republic of letters as we know it is it a parallel how would you sort of cast it
2: Absolutely. Um, I think that um, the the concept of a European Republic of Letters, which has been taken um, extremely seriously by scholars in the last two decades or so to describe um, the international community of European scholars from about the time of Erasmus of Rotterdam into the 18th century, I think that is a very powerful concept and a, and a wonderful insight into how Uh, scholarly community and and scholarly ethics and intellectual goals worked in a time of fragmentation, in a time of wars of religion um, and of competition between states. And it it acknowledges the ethos uh, uh, that bound these scholars together, as well as their intellectual projects. Um, So the the Republic of Arabic letters is sort of a subset uh, of this broader community, or we could say a province of the European Republic of Letters. It is is constituted of the people who had learned Arabic and who became seriously involved in researching uh, Arabic-related topics. And so many of the same kind of rules of engagement apply to these uh, people as to the broader European uh, community as a whole. And um, I would say just um, in terms of why did I decide to use this term, when I started this research project um, a number of years ago, um, I, as I began with uh, some of the major projects from both Catholic and Protestant Europe that had made it into print. For example, George Sale's translation of the Quran into English, uh, which was the first translation directly from Arabic into English and appeared in London in 1734. And I worked my way through manuscripts, uh, through my manuscript research, to the realization uh, that um, all of these people uh, were part of the same intellectual world. They were all communicating with each other, whether directly or more, more often just through their printed output. And so I realized that my interest in these discrete projects wasn't just a um, sort of an anachronism of my perspective of looking back several hundred years later. It actually did justice to the fact that all of these projects emerged from the same milieu. And and so I, I wasn't crazy. In other words, there was actually a story here about scholarly community as well as scholarly competition, and it needed to be reconstructed.
1: No, I think the book does an excellent job of connecting it to the wider context. I think you never feel like you're just looking at this set of scholars who know Arabic and can address these texts. I think you definitely get a sense of they are part of this larger world. They're being affected by their contexts. They're being motivated by, as you mentioned, many different um, goals uh, and many different approaches to Islam, which I found just it was a very rich picture that you drew. Uh, so the book, as I mentioned, starts with book, um, the movement of books and book collecting, libraries, and then it goes on to, and I think very organically so, uh, to your credit, the translation of the Quran. Um, so what do these translations? And you mentioned George Sale's translation in 1734. What does this? What do they tell us about how these different scholars approach different branches of Islamic knowledge? Because Islamic knowledge is such a... Whenever I try to explain it to someone who isn't immersed in Islamic studies, I feel like I need to. It's just it's this huge compendium of different forms, branches of knowledge. And you're very clear in articulating that the scholars you're writing about are engaged with them.
2: Absolutely. Well, let's start with the Quran. Um, the Quran is of extreme interest uh, to Europeans at this time, um, as I suppose it, it still is to Western people today, in part because um, they think they know what it is. They think that they understand it because it seems to be analogous to um to the bible um and in in many ways so it's the most famous book in arabic and of course this recommends it um not just to uh editors and translators and, and serious people but also to people who want to make money so to printers um and um in, we don't have definitive evidence of this but it's my uh it's my impression that George Sale's Quran is is a is a commercial product. That is that in part the idea came as much from his um, his publisher as as from the scholar himself, who hadn't evinced a great um, a great interest specifically in 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 the Quran prior to undertaking this project. And this is another part of the story of the Quran in the West, which I think is important and interesting. It's um, the Quran is translated both into Latin, which is the language of scholarship, uh, and uh, in in a way we could say um, the nearest equivalent to Arabic in that respect in the in the in the European context. But it is also translated, starting in the Renaissance, starting in the in the middle of the sixteenth century into um, vernaculars, that is into languages like Italian, French, and English, which indicates that this is a a book that is supposed to be of interest, not just to um, scholars of religion, uh, but to broader audiences. And some of its idea, for instance, its famous descriptions of of paradise, although uh, they are criticized by uh, European theologians, um they appeal to and reach a much broader a uh, much broader audience so people are attracted to lots uh, of aspects uh, uh, of the quran so we can say in a way uh, this is the quran as literature this is uh, the quran uh, as a literary text that people who are not theologians are interested in reading as well but in terms of um just to go back to your question in terms of the many branches of Islamic knowledge, I think what we observe in this period is um, emphasis, especially on uh, convergences with the Western Christian tradition. So things like uh, the Quran are eagerly translated. Things like uh, the study of Hadith, which which is much sort of harder to wrap your head around for 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 um, um, a European scholar at this time, just because of uh, of the lack of an exact equivalent, those things get much less play. It's which is not to say uh, that these scholars aren't the first scholars in the West seriously to engage with Hadith, because they do. Uh, they just don't give it the prominence um, that um, that the Quran gets. The Quran will always get more attention um, in the West, and, and when if you look at a different area, let's say historiography, you find something similar. So for instance, universal histories, histories that tell the whole story uh, of mankind, um, get a lot more um attention than other kinds of of uh of genres of historical writing. And in part I think that's because they promise the most bang for your buck. You buck you translate one book and you get um uh, you get a whole um you know, a whole a whole history of the world. But in part, it's also because universal history is a European genre as well. So we see here how convergent things are much more likely to be translated at this moment in time than things that are peculiarly uh, or distinctively um, Islamic that don't have an equivalent in the Western Christian tradition.
1: now I think that makes a lot of sense to me thinking back because there is a history of commentaries in the Western tradition and the approach to the Bible, um, which always struck me because of my familiarity with Quranic exegesis, the fact that they were so similar. Um, You mentioned a few moments ago, though, uh, the relationship of colonialism and that our perception of the formation of Oriental studies and Islamic studies in the West starts with colonialism, um, that our sense is, oh, there's this history of missionaries in the Middle East. Uh, There is this desire to know the other that one is colonizing, but as you mentioned, this begins pre-colonialism because colonialism is a late uh, 18th and 19th and 20th century phenomenon. So but the way I think about it is that colonialism introduces a power dynamic. But this isn't quite what your subjects are under the influence of. I mean, I'm sure there are different notions of superiority wrapped in there somehow, but there isn't quite the same power dynamic because they aren't colonizing Muslims in um, this way. So how were your subjects in conversation uh, with Islam? How would you compare them to scholars um, of the Western tradition and writing about Islam in the 19th and the 20th century. even
2: Absolutely. I think uh, that in general, in our um, sort of macro histories, we tend to uh, sort of go from crusades to colonialism in terms of our memory of um, Western engagement with, 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 um, Muslim parts of the world, and that, of course, is is a simplification. And what uh, what this uh, book wants to show is that there was a window, a window which certainly opened and, and then closed, but of about a century in which um, Christian scholars were, were quite excited about what they could learn uh, from Islamic books. And I think it's important to rewrite uh, that um, that. Um, that history into our, into our historical memory. I think it changes even how we read the later period, the the colonial period that we're more familiar with. Uh, But I really like your, your idea of comparing uh, these um, early modern scholars with Islamic studies scholars today, because I see both uh, similarities and differences. So on the one hand, um, To to start with the differences, I guess, Um, they are um, writing out of a sense of uh, kinship and analogy. That is, they, uh, just as they have their faith, uh, these Muslim people they're writing about have their own. And they see many similarities, of course, rooted in a way, um, primarily in the the genealogical connections between. Uh, Judaism Christianity and Islam so there's a sense in which this is a this is a very um, this is a very big family with very strong disagreements but nevertheless uh, it's a family and so you can see uh, similarities and there are arguments about how Islamic um, systematic theology uh, faces all of the same problems uh, that Christian theology does so people are are constantly finding, similarities and and in a way um, they are so in a way they are very different from uh, modern Western Islamic studies scholars today who are in some sense not engaged in, in the same task as the people whom they're studying although if you talk to anyone who relies um, heavily on on medieval reference works for example they, they will feel a a continuity in terms of of the kind of tools of scholarship um, uh, that 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 are very um old fashioned in a way or just the, uh, just old uh, rather than old fashioned those are the tools of of humanistic scholarship in in many areas but nevertheless there's a sense. Um, a clinical almost sense of distance and we don't find that in this period and even polemic uh, polemic is something that uh, uh, that um that nowadays we think alienates alienates you from from the thing that you're 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 criticizing uh, but but in this period what it one of the effects of uh people's desire to write a polemic against islam is that it makes them study it more closely. So they realize um, to to refute this religion, uh, you have to know it, and you have to do a better job than your medieval ancestors, because you have much better quality manuscripts available to you, much more knowledge. And so, in fact, what uh, it does is it keeps you engaged with the commentarial tradition, with the tafsir tradition uh, that you mentioned. It, it makes you study that tradition, because what you want ultimately is to understand the Quran in the way that Muslims do. So whereas in the 19th century, we find a whole tradition of of Western scholarship, which is, um, it's not taking the, 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 the contemporary Muslim perspective on things. It's in fact saying, giving alternative accounts uh, to how uh, Muslims interpret their tradition. And that actually, that starts in the later 18th century already. But in this period, so from the 17th century to the middle of the 18th century, uh, the way to win an argument about what a verse in the Quran means is to say, this is how it's read in, in Istanbul. And once you say that, case closed. So these scholars are are, are really, um, in a way, that they are, closer to the, the, the Muslim horizon of interpretation than later later Western scholars will be.
1: So we've been speaking a lot about the Islamic sciences, about the Quran, and you mentioned in passing universal histories. So I was curious, because these all sort of cover different spectrums of what it is to be Muslim or what it is to be Islamic, which is currently actually a big debate in the field of Islamic studies. Uh, but Your subjects, your scholars, were they approaching Islamic thought and Muslim civilization differently? So sort of the rise of Muslim civilization in seventh century Arabia um, onwards, were they writing and speaking about that in a way that was different to their approach to the Quran, for example, which you just mentioned?
2: Uh, absolutely i think that it's really important first of all just to flag that these people were interested uh, in secular muslim culture as well as in religious culture so although i've used uh, i've used the word islamic in a very broad sense in the book to cover both uh, we 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 shouldn't think that they were merely Obsessed with religion, and that that was the only thing uh, that drew them to the study of Arabic. and 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 the later chapters of the book focus on things like a his, historical study and 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 literature to a lesser extent as well, which was another another area of great interest to European scholars. And uh, I would say that there were several things about um, secular Islamic culture that interested. Um, these people, in, in terms of history, at the broadest level, they were just deeply impressed by the political achievements of uh, of, of 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 early Muslim Empire, uh, by the, the the tremendously rapid expansion um, of of the Islamic state, and they thought they compared this to the Roman Empire. The comparison is always with the achievements of the Romans. And the argument is, if we are interested in what the Romans achieved, we should all the more be interested in what uh, the early Muslims achieved because it's even more impressive. So for them, that was one of the great um, stories of, of world history was 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 the rise of Islam, and they wanted they wanted to do a better job of, of making sense of it. But then there was another question, which is uh, perhaps what you were referring to in particular, which is uh, the rise of um, of all kinds of of, of secular sciences uh, in in these um, early centuries, uh, in in the let's say the first six centuries um, um, uh, of Islam, and. Um, They were interested in that as well, and they had different interpretations of how this came about and and what it had to do with the Islamic revelation, whether it was intrinsically connected or not uh, to to the the, the teachings of the Quran. And and so people disagreed about this, but again, they thought it was important to make sense of of this flourishing of arts and letters and sciences um, that had taken place. And they all, I mean, this was a very uncontroversial thing in early modern Europe to acknowledge that the translation from Arabic into Latin in the Middle Ages had been a crucial moment in the history, in Western intellectual history. And that without those translations, um, European culture, as these people knew it, would have been substantially different. So... Um, so, so so that was something that no one ever really questioned or contested. The, the question that, that they did debate was how exactly did all of these translations that had been done uh, from Greek uh, into Arabic um, how, what was what were the motivations and what were the effects in Islamic history?
1: So you also mentioned that this window existed for a period before the other periods, which is the colonial approach to um, Islamic studies. So what was the legacy, so to speak, of this legacy? uh, What was the legacy, so to speak, of this Arabic Republic of Letters?
2: Well, um, so what changes is uh, the normative evaluation of Islam and of Islamic civilization, if we want to use that 18th century word, um, um, in Europe. Um, And I think in the second half of the 18th century, what we see is that the earlier excitement, the earlier sense of discovery and enthusiasm for all things Arabic and all things Islamic, that wanes. So people stop thinking that the solution to all of their intellectual problems is going to be found in Arabic books. And this, of course, coincides with a moment um, of, of, um, of geopolitical Weakness uh, of 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 Muslim states uh, that is very different from the earlier moment at, in of uh, flourishing of of simultaneous flourishing of the Mughals of the Safavids and of the Ottomans and while it's 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 hard and a bit lazy I think perhaps to 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 try to to connect intellectual change to geopolitics in any simple way certainly that that ambient. Change fuels a perception uh, that 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 somehow um, Islamic intellectual culture may be implicated in uh, political decline. That 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 somehow the religion and the and the, the intellectual culture it produced um, are 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 connected to this geopolitical decline. And people in the later eighteenth century will make that argument explicitly. What doesn't change is that people continue to study Arabic. So we have to be able to separate normative evaluation from the process of knowledge production itself, which continues. Um, And it continues um, in um, in a way building on all of the achievements of the Republic of Arabic letters. So for example, um, the the when the great scholar Silvestre de Sacy uh, starts out, and if you look at the footnotes of his early works, it's it's an it's um it's a who's who of the Republic of Arabic Letters. So there's a very direct way in which scholarship continues using past results and, of course, improving on them. But I think there's a more interesting legacy as well, which is um, the idea that these books which were written in such a sort of a hopeful uh, mode in with this sort of disposition of openness and of enthusiasm for a foreign uh, tradition, uh, those books don't disappear and some continue to be republished. The The biggest success story, of course, is George Sale's English translation of the Quran, which we mentioned earlier, which remains the standard English translation into the middle of the 20th century. So it has a 200-year history of being the way that um, Anglophone people who do not master Arabic encounter uh, the Quran. And Simon Oakley's History of the Arab Conquests, which was written in the early eighteenth century, is republished more often in the second half of the nineteenth century than in the entire eighteenth century. So these works, uh, which offer this uh, this particular um vision uh, of poss- of all the possibilities of islamic culture continue to exist even in that moment that we consider um not just the the high noon of european imperialism but also um, of uh, european ideology of, of of superiority and i think uh, that should make us um That should make us more um, critical in a way of that moment, because we see that there were other intellectual tools. There was a memory of another way of evaluating um, Islamic civilization that was less judgmental and um, it wasn't completely forgotten. So I think it's a really important uh, tool, even for scholars of the late 19th century, if they want if they're interested in giving a, a historically sensitive critique of the normative positions and the knowledge production of the 19th century.
1: I really like that point just because I think like as you said it makes us a little bit more critical because these things are part of our milieu. I do think the as you mentioned even though we don't use George Sale's translation of the Quran, I think most people who study Islam Um, or in European intellectual history know that that was a very widely circulated, I mean, his name is, it's a very iconic Quran to some extent. Um, And I like, I just, I like that point. I think you're absolutely right. It does carry this air of criticism and it does make us perhaps think more about our own work and how we approach things. And again, about, I think all intellectual history um, really forces you to think about your own context if you're writing history. And how your own environment and what other ideas you're bumping into influence what you write and how you read other sources. So to switch gears, um, because I'm always very, as an, I think I'm a proper nerd, I'm always very curious about the research experience. What was it like to track down all these books, manuscripts, and papers? Because I can only imagine that you were just, just all over, going to many different libraries, using different techniques to read them. They're very different sources in some cases. So what was your methodology?
2: Um I just want to add one small thing on George Sale's Quran before I answer your question, which is that a um um a famous um scholar of, of Islamic studies of our own time, who was trained uh in an earlier era, whom you and I both know and whom whom I won't name in this interview, is um has told me that that the the George Sale um, Quran translation is still useful if you want a quick reference from the footnotes to uh, what the Tafsir tradition has to say about something. So, and what I show in the book is that those footnotes were mostly taken from an earlier um, from an earlier study by a Catholic scholar. They were done in 17th century Counter Reformation Rome. So, if you consider that Islamic scholarship today. Um, is still in some ways um, indebted to the work of a Catholic scholar in seventeenth century Rome that that makes you realize something about the kinds of legacies of humanistic scholarship that 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 can be so enduring and, and to the point where we almost can't imagine it and yet and yet it happens in terms of my research experience um, well. Um, I'm not sure I have a lot, um, you know, I have many teachable insights to offer about this. But I would say that um, casting a, a wide net was, was the key uh, for me um, and traveling to many different places using the, the privilege that I was uh, researching this book as an American graduate student. So, so with, with funding and time on my side, I decided to be ambitious and I traveled all over Europe. And, and very few European scholars these days get to do a project quite like that, that is so connective. So that was really important to me. And another thing I learned is not to trust um, catalogs, especially not electronic catalogs, but also, um, but also not to trust um, printed ones, to always ask, are there more items in your collection that are not included in, um, in the catalog? And the answer was often, funny, you should ask. Uh, in fact, uh, there are. And I, um, I learned that through trial and error, just to try to be comprehensive and to be patient and eventually things come out of these collections and people remember things that they, they don't remember. If you just parachute in for a few days, it's impossible to extract things from their places in that way. Um, and, and another thing I did was to look at marginalia, so in printed books. So wherever I went, I would look at all of the copies of the printed books that I was interested in, even if those had been produced elsewhere in Europe. And you know, every so often I would find some very exciting marginalia that would help me to understand um, how a book uh, was read in its, in its own time. So I think just um, I don't think I even have a methodology other than just trying to be uh, comprehensive, uh, patient and, and hopefully somewhat organized.
1: I know I mentioned this to you earlier, but that's actually someone who's doing a global project who everyone keeps telling is unwieldy and everyone keeps asking me how I narrow down the sources. That's quite inspirational to hear. So I appreciate that. Um, So we always sort of close the interview with a bit of a teaser question, sort of what are you working on now? What projects are you embarking on
2: Absolutely. Well, I um, am starting to think about my next book, um, which is um, it's perhaps a bit too soon to tease. Uh, but in the meantime, I am writing a, um, a short essay on a person who I think is of extreme interest and yet who has barely been studied until now. And this is a a rather humble uh, person and perhaps that's why we haven't paid much attention to him. Um, He was a interpreter, a dragoman who worked uh, in the French consular service. So a person of French identity who nevertheless spent most of his life living in the Mediterranean and he ended, uh, his life ended uh, when he died uh, during the siege of Acre um, uh, during the Napoleonic campaign in Egypt. So he became Napoleon's chief Arabic interpreter during the Egyptian campaign. So for me, he's a wonderful person for thinking about uh, the connections between the Ancien Regime, between the world of knowledge production that I have spent many years uh, reconstructing, and this new world that starts to form um, uh, by the end of the 18th century um, and the ways in which this very old knowledge got deployed uh, for um, the, 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 the imperial project uh, of Bonaparte in Egypt. So it's a micro history, but I hope that it has something to say about, uh, once again, the, the, the long history of knowledge production and the intersections of uh, uh, of power um, with uh, scholarship in a way that my earlier but that my book uh, w- wasn't able to engage because because of the periodization.
1: Can I ask a nitty-gritty detaily question? Sure. So I'm curious just because classical Arabic is so different from spoken Arabic. And I, I, it's almost the same question I asked you about why you decided to learn Arabic. How did this dragoman learn Arabic? And do you know what he was speaking? Was he speaking a dialect? Was he...
2: I'm sure that he uh, he mastered multiple registers uh, of Arabic uh, because he um, had spent so much time uh, living in, in, not just in Egypt, but all, all over the Mediterranean, actually. But he was, although we translate dragoman as interpreter, they were, uh, we should think of them really more as translators. So they were mainly people who sat at desks and translated correspondence and other kinds of documents. And to do this, he had been trained in in classical Arabic. And his studies had been split uh, between um, Istanbul and Paris, where by this point, by the 18th century, there was a school for training interpreters in Oriental languages. So he had had a double education uh, both uh, in um, in the in the Ottoman Empire and in Paris and he was a specialist he was um, that was his entire professional training was in these languages in order to be able to do these translations which, which sometimes had very clear uh, political implications so he discovered for instance um, that um, Uh, A treaty that had been signed had been mistranslated and that in the the original Arabic text had a slightly uh, different meaning and and that um, that changed things politically for the French. So this is the kind of, of work that he did. So he was he was closer to a philologist, closer to a person of the book than the word interpreter might make us think.
1: Okay, that sounds like a really exciting project. I'm going to keep my eyes open for it. Anyway, congratulations on the new book and thank you for spending all this time with me today.
2: Thank you for your questions and thank you for having me on the podcast.